is April 12th, 2022, and we have the wonderful Shiksha Kariwada, Senior Director of Northeast for Avanon. Yeah, Data yeah. and AI for Northeast. Data and AI for Northeast. I don't know why I remember that. Uh, cool. And so you've had a really interesting career. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've had a really interesting life because you weren't born in the United States. Correct. So you came here and then you went from like, you know, banking to startup, mm -hmm. back to banking and now data. So you want to like talk about yourself first? Again? Sure. Um, I, we moved uh, to America as a family when I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason why we moved to America was literally because my mother won the lotto. It's really? called a diversity visa. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what year this was instituted, but it was basically to be able to make America more diverse. So there are... Can you imagine um, that these days? <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a very different world we live in today. Um, I don't actually know if the diversity visa is still a thing, but um, you, America as a whole wanted to make the country more diverse. I forgot what president and uh, they, people from all over the world would send in their applications. Uh, and based on like either your family history or education, um, you might get picked to be the next family that moves to America. I think I know what president, but I don't want to date you. So <laughs> well, I moved here when I was 15. Um, I went to high school, I finished high school in Houston, Texas, and then moved to Brooklyn uh, for college. Could you speak English when you were out in Texas? I did because we went to an all English school. So in Nepal, oh. a lot of schools, like private schools specifically, are English speaking. So mm -hmm. for me, the language transition wasn't the hard part. Mm -hmm. um, the cultural transition was actually not that difficult either because mm -hmm. upper middle class Nepal is not very different than middle class Houston, Texas in mm -hmm. a lot of ways, oh. right? We care about education. We care about the schools that we go to. We care about advanced placement classes. Mm -hmm. We care about this culture of like performance um, and being able to execute and being able to, uh, you know, do really good when in terms of education. Mm -hmm. I think that was very similar. Mm -hmm. um, I will say the one thing. <laughs> there's an anecdote around this which I I, I I I can't seem to be able to get out of my head. Every single time people are like six. What was the most shocking thing when you came to America? It was more around color. Um, so when I watched QVC. Mm -hmm. I kept seeing these people, the models that were applying um, tanning lotion. Mm -hmm. And in Nepal, the darker you are, that is not really associated with the idea of beauty. So the darker you are, the less attractive you're, mm -hmm. you, you're considered. Mm -hmm. So the ideals of beauty are so different. And coming here and on QVC, watching this model turn tan mm -hmm. from her original skin color was one of the most confusing experiences of my life mm -hmm. because I was just like oh this is what this is what um, the association of beauty to color tone or to skin tone was mm -hmm. very different here versus what it was in the bizarre. bizarre yeah I think a lot of because the same in Asia you know like Korea and Japan China the, the lighter your skin is it meant you weren't a laborer yeah or the higher class right and then here in America everyone's like going around sitting in a little tanning bed driving around the beach <laughs> Okay, so that great. was always interesting. And then moving um, to Brooklyn um, was a very interesting experience, actually. So to me, that was more of a culture shock, going from Houston to Brooklyn, New York, mm -hmm. then from Nepal to Houston. Mm -hmm. uh, because it was, you know, I lived in this inner city. I lived in East, East Flat, Flatbush um, around Brooklyn College. The neighborhood is a combination of 
you know, Haitian, Hasidic, um, and like a lot of Russian. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very different type of a culture than I was used to in Houston, Texas, especially suburbia of Houston, Texas. Um, and more than anything else, I think it was very challenging for me to figure out what my identity was at that point. Mm -hmm because I knew that I could be any, anybody I wanted to be in, in the cultures that I was surrounded by. But being a, you know, immigrant American who had moved here when I was 15, going to college at 18, and being in this very diverse set of people that came from all of these different countries, some of them American, some of them not, it was this, uh, it was this very interesting place for me to, to, for me to figure out Am I American? Am I not American? Am I Nepali in America? Like, what does this third culture kid dimension look like? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a very interesting period of exploration for me. Were you going to college in Brooklyn? I was going to college in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Where are you going to college? Uh, Brooklyn College, City University of New York. Good-ass college. It, it's a good college. It's, it's called the Poor Man's Harvard, apparently. <laughs> I found it on some Wikipedia article. <laughs> It's, it's interesting you say that because uh, I don't know if I could talk about this, but I went to college specifically to figure out my identity. Mm -hmm. And when I mean that, I don't mean like I wrote like my college essay because I want to figure out my identity. You know, it's about, about like the college I went to was the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at NYU. Yeah. And so it's where you like take class across NYU and make up your own major. And I was like, what do I want to study? Mm -hmm. I had the same issue where I like was coming back from China after like seven years in China, like elementary, middle school, and high school. And then going to college in New York. Yeah. And so I was like, I was studying what was called cross-cultural graphic design. But like half my classes were art classes, which were a waste of time. And then the other half were like media studies, like cultural studies, um, you know, those kind of things. And uh, I, I like, by the end of my sophomore year, I actually felt like I figured it out. Mm -hmm. So the solution, like the place where I landed was that probably after taking these classes, I was like, well, you know, like perception about um, ethnicity is not a social contract, but perception about who you are based on your ethnicity is. And like, you know, I feel like people, like people apply labels to you and people internalize those labels. Uh -huh. And so, you know, especially among like Asian Americans, there's a lot of like, you know, are you too Asian? Are you not enough Asian? There's a whole like, yeah, documentary thing going on. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, do you use chopsticks? Do you like, you know, can you read man or read? And uh -huh. it's, it's kind of, I think it's really dumb because like, there's, like, what does it even mean to be Asian? Like, Asian, the American conception of Asian has nothing to do with Asia, you know? And so it's like, you know, am I Chinese? Am I American? Both of these are labels that, first of all, don't mean anything. It depends on the person. Mm -hmm. And second of all, they have nothing to do with me. So, mm -hmm. like, I am whoever I am. doesn't have to... Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, that was a kind of a expensive use of two years to figure that out. <laughs> but you know, then I was like, this is done. I just want to make money. So then I changed my major into something else. What did you change your major to at that point? It was still graphic design, but I called it corporate beautification okay so it was about like making design to help corporates make money and then and then we got on the same project together at capco and you started testing wires yeah so so <laughs> so i did two i said two years studying identity in college yeah. i was uh -huh. like that was a waste of time i uh -huh. changed it and i spent two more years studying graphic design and then i was also working professionally as a designer and when i graduated i was like i don't ever want to do graphic design again in my life this is a terrible terrible industry and so I was like, fuck, what do I do now? And so I was very lucky to get hired into Capco because they just started a digital division and started hiring designers. 
but I want to get off that. I want to get out of digital as quickly mm -hmm, as possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then, like the first thought, so uh, Nitesh called me into his office. He yeah. was like, I see you know how to do user experience testing. That's just like user acceptance testing, right? It's like, no. It's like, you're, you're going to Morgan Stanley. And so, but that was exactly where I wanted to go. And even though it was a tough project and everything, but it was where I wanted to be. Yeah, yeah, that was, that's amazing that they were like, oh, user experience design, it's probably the same as user experience. Yeah, it's exactly the same, right? It's like, exactly no. the same, yeah. right? So, so, sometimes you're, you look back at your life, you're like, how did I get here? Like, how did we get here? Mm -hmm. It's because one of our bosses mm -hmm. at that time made a mistake of thinking that you are like user acceptance tester mm -hmm. rather than user experience designer. Well, mistake, right? Because they wanted resources to go to the project. They wanted so people. Like, whatever angle they could take, they're going to throw bodies at it. Exactly. But, but no. isn't that so interesting? I think like what we talked about, mm -hmm. we were maybe going to shape this a little bit around adaptability, mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, for two years you went to school for this one particular thing. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you went to school for something else and wanted to do design. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden got involved understanding about user acceptance testing, mm -hmm. software development life cycles, and then got into data and AI, mm -hmm. and then got into um, programming. You like taught yourself how to yeah, code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just like adaptability is sometimes, like I think I would just define it as like, how would I define it? The, the situation, making the situation work for you? You know, I mean, yes, definitely. Like, you know, it's like being, I think, being flexible enough and being able to learn new things yeah. to be better fit to a new environment that you find yourself in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's not easy. You know, like learning is hard. Uh, so much to learn. The, the fun part, though, is um, understanding what is required in that situation from you. And being able to shape your skill set and competencies mm -hmm. to be able to match that, I think, actually teaches you that your identity is very fluid. Yeah. Because a lot of people define themselves by the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And when you keep jumping onto new things to be able to do, you learn those skills very quickly and your identity doesn't stay formalized into this one rigid structure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's... um. This is uh, an example that you'll find, you, you've probably seen pretty often in tech where sometimes people are like, well, you need to listen to me because I've been doing this for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm not looking for someone to, to have done the same thing for the past 10 years. Yeah. I want someone who can learn the past 10 years of stuff in one year. Yeah. You know, and so the, the way tech is evolving too, if someone comes in and says, I have 10 years of experience doing this, I'm like, your skills are no longer relevant. Yeah. Because, you know? like, tech changes so quickly. It what you did 10 years so ago rapidly. is, right. like, in a museum these days. Yeah. <laughs> people, like, and I mean that, I actually don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean that, like, people should study what happened 10 years ago to have yeah. context for why we do what we do today. Mm -hmm. But I think that what gets you hired these days is more like, I, I understand what happened 10 years ago, but I'm looking five years ahead. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a very difficult skill set, actually. It's very valuable. I totally agree with that. Um, and, and, and for people to be defined by like, this has been my job for the past 10 years, I think there's shows the inflexibility and the rigidity of their thinking as well. Mm. You know, and um, usually I end up not hiring or working with people like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an impediment to adapting to the situation. Exactly. Because, um, have you heard of the OODA loop? 
Yeah, what is that? So it's like OODA. Mm-hmm. It was uh, developed by the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And it's it stands for like Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. So like they try to teach their pilots like run a very short like five, ten second OODA loops. Okay. Where it's like, I mean, like in that kind of environment, you can't, don't have like much, you gotta focus your brain on whatever you're doing. And so it's like, first you observe the space around you, mm-hmm. and then you like figure out where you stand inside that space. Mm-hmm. And then you make your decision and you go do it. You don't think about it. And then you restart the loop. How fast are these loops? Well, when you're a pilot, these happen like in five, 10 seconds. Wow. But like, it's applicable everywhere. You know, like, in, like the whole point of Agile yeah. is you want to have like two week Udo loops. Mm-hmm. And like in corporate decision making, you want to have shorter, like where market feedback gets back to you quicker and you like make decisions faster. Yeah. And so, I think like uh, even in uh, artificial intelligence in reinforcement learning, which is mm-hmm. what Google and Facebook have been doing, like there's a concept called Q learning, which is basically the same where it's like observe your environment, mm-hmm. you know, make your decision based on whatever fancy ass model you have right. and receive feedback, update your decisions and do it again. Yeah. I mean, so. the, the entire product development paradigm, the digital product development paradigm revolves around how quickly can you iterate? Mm-hmm. How quickly can you take the inputs that have been given to you? Mm-hmm. And how quickly um, can you push out the features mm-hmm. based on the inputs that have been given to you? Yeah. So I find that really interesting that some of the fundamental rules of human adaptability in an Air Force setting is applicable mm-hmm. almost exactly to like a product management framework. Yeah. To AI and machine learning, right? Yeah, it's a really good framework to use to think about stuff because mm-hmm. like like we just talked about the first question you asked was how short is the loop mm-hmm. but you can't like the only way to make the loop shorter is to be good at every step of the loop mm-hmm. and then it's actually really hard especially in like an organization because like finding out people who like understand the market and where we sit inside it and people who like decision makers and people who execute are three different groups of people yeah and different skill sets hard to tie together i totally agree with that i was uh reading that book uh, called Loon Shoot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read that book written by Safi Bacall, and he basically applies the physics of, uh, um, what's it called? Um, we're gonna have to cut edit this part out. No, it's, um, you know, when uh, water turns to uh, gas, what's that state called? vapor yeah vapor but there's like a he applies the physics of state change Mm -hmm. to organizations and human beings so when do when does water turn into vapor Mm -hmm. what is like the threshold for how that changes the boiling point yeah the boiling point of how that changes but then at what how do you apply that exact physics to um other complex dynamic structures like organizations. How do you apply it? Well, from what he talks about is actually about the soldier, similar to what you said, that that information exists in three different bodies, right? Mm-hmm. You have the foot soldiers, and then you have the artists in an organization. I think this is something that you see in a lot of different organizations. When we were at Capco, there's the digital team, mm-hmm. and then there was the rest of IT, target operating model type of work, right? Mm-hmm. There was the data and AI team, and then there was the rest of the org, mm-hmm. right? So there's always going to be the artists that are always thinking about what is the new thing, what is the innovative thing, how do we break this? Mm-hmm. And then there's always going to be the foot soldiers that are actually the main revenue generators in the business. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that 
are on the sales teams that are the ones that know what the client wants to buy, how you bring in the revenue, how you work through the sales funnel. Mm -hmm. They're the operators of the business. Mm -hmm. And the challenge in most of these organizations is that those two parts don't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So what, um, what Safi talks about is how do you keep those two, your artists and your soldiers in dynamic equilibrium? Because if you have too much of one over the other, mm -hmm. um, then it's not gonna lead to change. Mm -hmm. Because if you focus too much on your artists, then you have probably lost the fundamentals of what it means to run a business or operate a business. Mm -hmm. But if you focus too much on just the innovation agenda and just the people that are trying to break things, you've lost the focus on how you actually run a business. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's very important to have both of those types of people in dynamic equilibrium mm -hmm. and be able to like listen to those inputs and then make your um, action plans based on both of those inputs. That's interesting. So it's almost like the innovation guys, they are the, they have their own little loop going on, but the action part is what filters down to the rest of the organization. The action part filters down to the rest of the organization after sufficient time has passed. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times the innovation guys might be too early in the process mm -hmm. and they don't understand how that actually fits into the overall agenda of the organization. Mm -hmm. So they just end up looking like a bunch of talking heads here. Meanwhile, the organization that actually says like, look, I know how to run a sales pipeline. I know how to uh, sell a deal. I know all of the operational efficiencies I need to have within the finance department to operations department to enable large scale deals. Those guys are looking at the innovation guys going, you don't know our business. Mm -hmm. And the innovation guys are looking at all the ops and the finance guys going, you're too boring and you're doing boring stuff. That to me sounds like the innovation guys not observing their environment correctly, you know, not understanding where they sit inside it. That's actually a really good observation because I think it happens on both sides too, right? right? It also happens on the ops guys that are just focused on maybe like large deals and we know how we're going to make this revenue, but not being able to be aware of where the market is going, mm -hmm. where if you don't try and test and, and fail fast, you likely won't be on the up and up you likely will fail really easily. So I think adaptability is needed on both sides mm -hmm. to be able to understand where you are given the context of where you are and also be able to visualize what this is going to look like three, four, five years out. Mm -hmm. So, well, does it, having read this book, are you, have you like structured your team to have an innovation element inside it? Yes and no. I think the element that I took most from it is uh, surround yourself with some of the most diverse perspectives. So my team does not look like me. My team looks very different. Every single person in my leadership team has a very different skill set. They have, they all have their superpowers, and they're categorically different. Um, uh, you know, I have a team member who's very, very focused just on strategy, tip of the spear. How do I like land one client, one opportunity? Um, I have another leader within my team who focuses on all of the large scale deals. And how do we do these things at scale? Um, I have another person on my team that I recently hired who's only gonna be focusing on mostly architecture. Mm -hmm. And like, what does it actually mean to, um, to uh, make this new platform in an in a architecturally like scalable, dynamic sort of system design perspective? Mm -hmm. You know, so every single person on our team thinks about 
what they have to accomplish differently because they come from a different set of skills. Diversity of skill and diversity of experience is really important. And for me, I never make any of the members of my team feel like one is important than the other. We all need to work in concert to be able to accomplish our goals. Dynamic equilibrium. It's almost like different people on the team are specializing and adapting to different kinds of scenarios. Different kinds of scenarios, yeah. And when we work together on something, then we bring all of our relevant skill sets to the table. Mm -hmm. um, and my team is actually very young compared to most other teams um, that have a very similar PL that I do. Mm -hmm. um, our team is significantly younger and significantly more diverse. Mm -hmm. That's good. Well, you know, I think that proves how valuable the diverse that the, looks like the diversity of you said was a good reaction. <laughs> that was a good, exactly. So, how did, because you didn't start your career in data analytics. I did not. How did you get to where you are? Oh, it has been, uh, what's that? There's a TED talk, which is around, some people find their calling earlier on, some mm -hmm. people find their passion earlier on. Some people have a calling and a passion for literally six months, and then they go do something. <laughs> and those people are called multi-potentialites. There's a tech oh, talk about that. Oh, okay. <laughs> multi-potentialites. Everything's a potential. <laughs> so you jump into it and then you do it as best as you can for six months to a year. You get what you want out of it. You accomplish the things that you set out to accomplish and you jump to something else. Um, so I think I started my career at Goldman Sachs. Uh, I was in the middle office, uh, futures trading desk. And then from that point, I think because it was 2007 and how frustrating, challenging the systems were at that point because market volatility was crashing everything everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I just got really burnt out. So by 2000, um, I want to say 10, I left Goldman, moved to Nepal mm -hmm. to run my father's construction company, mm -hmm. um, which probably after two years, I recognized I was an alien in my own country since I'd been living in America since I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. Being back in Nepal at 23 was really challenging. Mm -hmm. um, so I just couldn't get myself to become a part of that world that I lived in in Nepal. Mm -hmm. And I left, and I, when I moved to the US, I worked for um, a startup called Fuse Machines. We were building AI bots at 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what got me really interested in technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and since then, you know, went to Capco, uh, did some consulting work with Capco and Morgan Stanley, mm -hmm. uh, then moved to IBM mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, built kind of a, a studio team. Uh, was an innovation lead for their business process outsourcing. You're an artisan. Business. So I, I was just, my entire life has just been wherever this may lead you know <laughs> well i mean it's like like the way it, the way it almost sounds to me that you were like continuously or maybe not continuously but like periodically checking to see if where you were was the right place for you to be i was and then if it wasn't then yeah. you were like you know looking at the whatever opportunities were out there and just yeah. picking the right one and i will say that at the time i don't think i had as much decision like data points to make a decision mm -hmm. i would at that point i over index on skill set whether or not i liked the person or the the company i was going to be working for mm -hmm. um and if i had a pay increase mm -hmm. 
So I over-index on things that probably will not be that important to me now. Really? Yeah. So like at that point, you know, the first 10 years of my career, it was all about exploration. Mm. It was all around, you know, how do I get all of the skills that I need um, to be able to, you know, build something. I didn't know what that something was. Mm -hmm. It was all about like, I pick up a wrench here. I pick up a hammer here. I pick up a nail here. You know, I want to build a house. I have no idea what the house is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And so not until I actually joined Avanad and led a data and AI practice was when I was like, I actually love what I do. Because mm -hmm. it had all of the elements of everything I'd done before. Mm -hmm. Number one, it had elements of dynamism because every deal is different, every client is different, every problem to be solved is different. Mm -hmm. It had an element of people management because you're leading a practice of over 65 people. It had an element of adaptability and innovation because we are literally working on some of the hardest challenges within data and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, it had an element of obviously everything in the umbrella of broader tech mm -hmm. and like the excitement that tech brings and all of the new tools and, you know, how to now integrate these new tools into the system mm -hmm. and how to solve a problem with that tool, right? So all of those things that I had really like found joy in the first 10 years, I somehow found that in one job. Mm. And overarching, you know, Avanad is a very kind organization. The leaders are, it, they have so much integrity. Mm. And just the leadership itself just makes me feel excited mm. about actually working for the firm. Um, and my team itself, you know, like I said, like they're diverse, they're smart. Um, and I learn from them every single day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so I, I combined all of the best things that I like about all of the jobs that I've had in the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And somehow this just happened to be the job that I found myself in when I was 34 years old. And I am, I couldn't be more excited. Well, that sounds like a great advertisement for Avanade. <laughs> yeah, right. Good advertisement for Avanade. Again, I don't know if it's an advertisement for Avanade well, because true, I right? happen the best, to find... The best ads are true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The, it's it's also, you know, I found a vessel mm -hmm. for like whatever I had become mm -hmm. after, you know, 12, 15 years in the industry, after picking up all of the tools that I needed to pick up, you know, it eventually just culminated to being like, ah, I like this house. I started building the foundation. I was like, I'm enjoying the process. Mm -hmm. Started building out the ground floor. I'm loving this, you know, and now it's about like, I just want to keep building and keep making it bigger. And, uh, it just taps into all of my competencies, my skill sets, and my values as a leader and a person. And Avanade just gives me the autonomy mm -hmm. to explore all of those. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, like uh, Confucius said something once. Mm -hmm. He was like, I think it was one of the few things he said that are valuable. He said that like, you you stand up when you're 30, mm -hmm. meaning that you really become an adult when you're 30. It takes a while to get to that point. And he also said that you stop being confused when you're 40. <laughs> I mean, the point was, the point I was trying to make was that you got to keep studying, you know, because a yeah. lot of the students were younger. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you know, don't be like frustrated. Don't be like so hasty to do something. You're going to, you got to take your time. It takes take time. time. And I think it does like, like a lot of the, it's almost impossible to learn any of these in like a classroom or a static setting. You have to like go out and, yeah. so here's one thing that like, um, one thing that I think is like extremely important. And one thing that in terms of like, in, like in terms of having kids, I think is really important for, mm -hmm. for their development mm -hmm. is that it's really important for them to make their own decisions, mm -hmm. even if, and especially if it leads to bad consequences, because mm -hmm. 
like that's the, like if someone else makes a decision for you and something bad happens yeah you just blame the person and you don't for yourself mm-hmm. and if you make your decision but like you don't act on it then you don't have any feedback you have to like make your own decision and deal with the consequence one way or another to really mm-hmm. and of course also reflect on that experience to really like um almost consolidate it as something you can use later on i agree and it's also very interesting how you know everything from confucius to even if you look at um some of the platitudes that people use very often right the only way out is through it mm-hmm. it's uh you don't get to a point of becoming your own person unless you've been through it mm-hmm. and so you know i think you need enough of a range of experience at least in your first decade mm-hmm. of like working whatever if, even if it's corporate america or entrepreneurship or whatever you decide to do right mm-hmm. um i think you need that time to be able to get to 30 and be like, I have arrived. Mm-hmm. And it literally feels like a mental shift mm-hmm. where it is every core in your being says, I get it. It's almost like looking into the matrix. I probably felt this way when I was about 28, 29 years old. That was around like the time because I'd also moved back from Nepal. I'd worked for a startup um, that was all consuming. You know, I, I freaking loved every minute of it. But it, it was all consuming. I mean, we worked all the time. Uh, and then having the diversity of experiences and the range of experiences over 10 years, what, what it taught me was actually, you know, I started taking my job very seriously, but not personally anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it showed me the difference between this is your personal and this is your work. What you do is not who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the fact that I had done some really hard things, I became the person who can do hard things going forward. Mm-hmm. I think it also gave me the confidence to trust myself, to trust my instincts. I think if when I was early, younger, when I was probably in my mid twenties, I had a lot of anxiety and uh, I had a lot of anxiety because like, I always felt like I didn't belong no matter where I was, right? The, the third culture sort of identity question was always there. Mm-hmm. Um, where do I belong? Who am I? Um, where do I fit in? What are the boxes I'm supposed to fit in? And I think at 30, because of the range of experiences, I stopped trying to fit in a box and I kind of just said, I'm just going to delete the boxes that I don't fit into. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I was able to do that is because I had confidence that I did not fit in those boxes and I was okay with not fitting in, in any of those boxes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it is entrepreneurship or it's corporate America, whatever type of job you do, I think doing really, really hard things gives you the confidence to then be able to trust your gut. Because at that point you have, it's not about faith, it's about evidence that you can do hard things. And hard things and identity are like so interrelated. And I don't think any of this stuff really triggers until you've had the sufficient experience to do so. I know that was a very long way of saying what happened to me at 30. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think like, I think it's really interesting because you started an investment bank in operation and then third, like 10 years later, you were still at investment bank in operation, with all the tools for operation. Mm-hmm. But uh, even though it seemed like you were like, you landed where you started, you were a completely different person. You got back there. And that was, that changed the, the context and the path, the path forward completely. Absolutely. And also getting, it wasn't a circle as much as I would say knowledge is um is not incremental it's exponential so the more you learn about new tools processes 
new ways of doing business, learning about cultural context, who you are in Nepal, you know, coming of age uh, in America. The combination of all of those things somehow is like this exponential trajectory that you get into. Also reading, you know, like it's so important to be able to find all kinds of stuff to read, whether it's philosophy to poetry to cognitive science to behavior science, doesn't matter. You know, it's like the more you read, I think the more it builds your understanding and the framework of the world. It also builds an understanding of and framework of yourself. And those two are just very much related. Um, and I think that's why at 30, it was 29, it was probably like this exponential shift that just kind of made me very clear about my identity, my place in the world. And it also made the jobs I had after that, the roles I had after that, I had exponential impact on those jobs as well. I, because I wasn't just doing them to take the tools, I was now starting to build something uh -huh. um, that was meaningful and that was long lasting. And I started seeing my impact and that loop actually starts to move faster. Because yeah. you're adapting, you're sensing, you're building, you're iterating, because now all of your tools are capable of you building something more meaningful. Uh -huh. And then you also get validation from the people around you. Uh -huh. And so the combination of all of those just makes you go through that loop so much faster. Yeah. So I think after 30, you start to build upon this like dream that you decided to embark on when you were probably 21, yeah. but you don't know at 21 what it's gonna look like at 30. Yeah, you don't even know what you want at 21. No. <laughs> so like, it's almost like you have to get what you thought you wanted. Yeah. Like, oh, this is actually what I wanted. And then you have to go out. And then, by the way, that process is very painful, like figuring out and realizing that what you wanted was, wasn't what you actually wanted. Mm -hmm. It's a very painful process because now like your whole world kind of falls apart. But it's, it's also very necessary. I think so. And, and do you say that because of your NYU experience or was it because of more of your startup experiences? It was all of it because like I thought I wanted to study a Danny and that was wrong. And I thought I wanted to like do graphic design and that was also wrong. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, like I was doing AI for a while, right? And then I stopped doing that and started doing crypto for a while. Mm -hmm. And like we talked about, I mean, like, um, I don't know, it's, um, but I think it calls go back to what we talked about is you have to, you have to do it have that experience to, to really know like there's no way um so one thing i was talking about with noah klein on the podcast mm -hmm. was that like can we understand other people and his answer was like no of course we can't understand other people because we aren't them we haven't experienced what they've gone through mm -hmm. and i think it's the same deal where like you can't possibly know what you have until you have it that's true also i think it's important to switch the narrative because all of your experiences fit, if they fit under this narrative of, I did it for the first short amount of time, that didn't work. I did this for a short amount of time, that didn't work. Um, it's just going to be uh, this like life littered with failures. It's like whack-a-mole kind of. Right, yeah. except if you get to a place where you're like, all of these failures made me who I am today, mm -hmm. you have a very different context of now how to move forward because then you don't, you're not starting your 30s, early 30s, with an idea that things didn't work out. It's like, you're, you are exactly where you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And this is where sort of, you know, the, my probably Hinduism upbringing and, and Buddhist education kind of come together, um, where actually it's, it's all about building a narrative and build a narrative that leads to a more positive action and change. Mm -hmm.
and I believe that's what's going to help you. So, let me ask you this. So, let's say your role shifted today or mm -hmm. tomorrow, and like, not going to comment on like Avanade's current training pipeline because I don't know anything about it. But let's say you were yeah starting tomorrow, you were in charge of training and mentoring from all new like new entry level hires for Avanade, mm -hmm. like fresh out of college, and this is their first job, and you need to train them to be. Well, obviously productive assets for Avanade, but yeah. also like whatever you think is appropriate. So how would you approach structuring that program? Um, I think one of the first things I would probably put together would be um, a pitch deck around... Um, Spoken like a true sales <laughs> Right. Like put together a, a pitch deck. I would give them uh, probably uh, some sort of problem to be solved. From a client perspective and I would probably ask them to get creative about how you solve for that problem mm -hmm. so most of the people that we hire already have some fundamental level of um, technology training mm -hmm. so whether it is you want to build an app whether it is you just want to build a prototype whether it is you want to build a deck um, really thinking about there's a very particular client problem to be solved how would you solve it what that does I think it, it lets people be creative in their own boxes so a programmer might build an app versus a designer might build a, a, a front-end experience, right? Versus like a back-end developer might figure out a way to pull together a bunch of data inputs to provide an output. So I think whatever their skills are, it doesn't matter. Um, it's almost uh, like giving them a problem to be solved in this box where they can solve it based on the skill sets that they have. And I think I would probably then first have them work together and then eventually bring all those ideas separately and then bring them together and then see what part that they missed and how much they could have learned from each other. Because what that also does, I think, is when you are um, diverging from all of these different ideas, you're kind of in your own box. You're thinking about it from your point of view, why you're right. But the second you have to converge your ideas, you have to kind of try and figure out why everybody else is right. As well and then what the full picture looks like because it's never just what this person thinks never just what this person thinks never just what this person thinks right mm -hmm. it's about all of those three ideas coming together to build an end-to-end -end solution mm -hmm. and then number two what I would also do is when they um, when they talk about their ideas play back how they solved for the problem I would actually have them talk more about individually about what they learned from the other party so it might have started out as a debate of why each individual idea was correct in its own box but by the end of it i want them all to talk about what they learned that they did not know before they got into this team that brought together all of these different ideas because I think as society, we've gotten very good at evaluating other people's ideas and saying whether that's right or wrong. <laughs> but I don't think we do a good enough job of telling people around, hey, this is how your idea actually changed my mind. This is how your insight has changed my way of thinking. And I think that needs to be a skill set that we need to learn more and more of. Um, so it's listening, assessing, evaluating, but also learning from the people around you. Um, and knowing that you are only a sum of the parts and you're one part of a much larger whole. Um, and I think that's probably one of the core skills that I would want all of my consultants to learn. So it's almost like focusing on 
you know, communication skills, uh, empathizing with your teammates and with the client, you know, problem solving, thinking creatively, yeah. uh, critiquing your own pro approaches, all soft skills, because they're skills. expected that hard skills going to come in. Yeah. Exactly. So what about, because like in, in a firm like Avogadro, I'm, I'm thinking that like what always happens is not everyone gets the project they want, then everyone does well at the project they're at, mm -hmm. and the ones that do well, they outgrow their entry-level role very quickly. Mm -hmm. And some of them even want to learn to leave the firm, you know? So like how, over like the next few years, as they grow at Avanon, then how yeah. would you kind of, how would you, given everything we talked about, about adaptability, you know, how would you mm -hmm. help them grow in the way that's best for them and the firm? I think a big challenge with organizations is that they look at everyone exactly the same way. High performers are not the same as like average or even low performers. They're categorically different buckets. High performance in my team, I, um, I will go out of my way to mentor them. And even my entire leadership team is very aware of who fits in the nine box and who are the top performers. And we have almost like bi-weekly or monthly coaching with those folks. And the reason why that is, is because you can't just let those people get on a project and just assume that they're going to learn everything on that project. Mm -hmm. They need to also feel a sense of belonging, that someone's on their side, mm -hmm. that they have a, a sounding board if they ever needed one, and this is a community. This mm -hmm. is a community of like-minded people who want to see you learn and grow. Because if you don't do that, then you're put to your point. Either they will leave, or they will start to blend into the average. So they're like, oh, working hard doesn't really accomplish anything. So I might as well just, you know, it's about reversal to the mean. It's just easier for me to just be completely average. Mm -hmm. So what we have is actually a really good method of like communicating back and forth around who we know are our superstars and our superstars are absolutely really well taken care of. Um, we also have a core group of people and of course like you don't know what people's capabilities are until you push them. Mm -hmm. So even with for those core group of people, we will always provide opportunities to be able to, um, you know, expand their skill set, learn new sets of skills, and it's really all around like whether or not they're going to raise their hand. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because some people are always going to be excited about expanding themselves and expanding their skill sets and learning something new. Some people are perfectly fine with, you know, just doing the client work on a day-to-day -day basis and then that's what they want to do at the end of the day that is their job you know you have to your job is to make the client happy it's great but if you want to learn all of these other skills that are around sales that are around leadership you probably have to tap into other parts of the uh parts of the Avanade organization rather than just the project team and you know people that are open to that expansion we will provide the support people that aren't i mean you're still doing your job and that's fine and then you have you know, uh, the, the, the folks that are struggling. And a lot of times, like, we provide as much support as possible, but after a set amount of time, it's consulting, it's an up and up in our culture. Yeah, so we, like, have very different support structures for all types of people. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the last thing we have time to talk about, but it's like, it sounds like the way you're describing the system, it sounds like it rewards high performers. It's like set up, the system is set up to identify those people who are soldiers and artists and fast track them and reward them. And we talked about how like corporate culture has changed where it's not about like, like in the fifties, the stereotype it's, it's kind of true is that you do your job 50 years and you retire, mm -hmm. take care of the company. Mm -hmm. And now those roles are gone. They're not coming back ever. ever again. And it's like now every, it's like the amount of like the bar has gotten higher 
but for the people who aren't at bar it's like life has gotten so much better for them mm -hmm. and like you need people who are self-motivated and adaptable and have a strong focus on personal development and understand the context that they're going into yeah these people are actually quite you know what like 20 percent of the population Barely. at most yeah and so so you want to talk about that how like corporate culture has changed absolutely i think there is this uh belief that just because you're in corporate america you do this like boring nine to five job and you have no autonomy and you have a boss that tells you what to do and um you know there's just this idea that like it overall sucks mm -hmm. and there is nothing further away from the truth mm -hmm. if you are someone who's motivated if you're someone who's driven and you are someone who wants to focus on personal growth Corporate America is a great place to be because if you are able to articulate why the things that you're going to do is going to have a bottom line impact or help the company in some way, just frame it as that. The story could be around self-development. Self the story could be, hey, I'm in a project team and I'm just doing this testing project. Mm -hmm. However, like I want to learn more about like sales pursuits. I want to know how to put RFPs together. I want to put together SOWs, right? Like statement of work. Um, anybody who wants to stretch into that role can stretch into that role as long as they frame it as, hey, I know I'm working a lot on this particular project and I'm spending about 60 hours on the client project, mm -hmm. but I want to maybe dedicate only 50 hours or 40 hours a week to the client project, dedicate 20 hours of work to like sales support because I want to learn something on my own. No one will say no to that. Mm -hmm. As long as you're able to frame the client expectations, as long as you have a level of camaraderie with your client be able to you know manage expectations for yourself and the client mm -hmm. you can do anything you want the challenge is most people end up getting in this bucket of well i just have too much work anyways mm -hmm. it's i can't i don't have time for any of this other stuff because i have too much work so you end up getting into this problem loop rather than like solution loop mm -hmm. and so when you're in the like i just have this problem and i can't solve it then you're not going to be able to solve it. Mm -hmm. So there's a set number of people who will always be in that loop no matter what. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at some folks, like their personal lives, their, you know, um, the, the, the way they work out, the, you know, how they... How they view how work they view the work, life. Yeah, and their life. Like, everything is just kind of... Um, it, it's not at the highest level. You know, it's always like, it's, it's always supporting. It feels like they have been told to do this one mandate and that's what they're going to focus on mm -hmm. rather than building their own path and figuring out their own autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of those types of folks are in corporate America. But they're letting decisions be made for them. Yeah. They will make let decisions be made for them. And those, a lot of times, those are the people that are in the majority and end up just giving corporate America, I think, a bad rep. Mm -hmm. I don't think it should be as bad a rep as everyone gives it. I think there are opportunities for expansion if you choose to do so. Yeah. I think there's opportunities for growth if you want to see it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like everything else in life, like whether or not you believe it, whatever you believe, you'll find the evidence for it. You know, if you feel like you're someone who's not loved, you'll find evidence in the world that you're not loved. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who believes that you're adored, admired, loved, all of those things, you'll find evidence in the world that you are. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times, 
um, folks that somehow sometimes will have this victim mindset because I mean maybe for the right reasons maybe for all of the right reasons that they've struggled through a lot and uh, maybe they are in that in, in, in that type of a mindset because they have been through a lot in their life in general right um, they might end up thinking that there is no control and they just have to do what's been given to them um, and you know I can't speak for all of those but for the most part I think in corporate America, if you change your narrative yeah. around, I am going to do X, Y, Z because it's going to help me grow in this way, yeah. not for the organization, not just for the client, not just for my boss, not just for my coworker, because it's going to help me become a better person in this way, yeah. you will likely get to the highest rung of the, rung of the corporate America ladder, yeah. the corporate ladder. Yeah, so I guess on that note, you know, um, the important thing is, it's growing right always growing. what helps you grow growth mindset is absolutely crucial yeah. i think and uh you know i would anybody who was struggling with a really challenging boss or a very challenging project or a very challenging job um it's a short-term thing mm. it's not your career mm. you know your career is much longer than a job or a project or a boss um, so it's really around understanding what that situation requires at that point for you to do and use that as an opportunity to grow, mm -hmm. no matter what it is. And I go through this all the time. I have bosses I dislike. Mm -hmm. I've been in companies I hate. I've been in projects I absolutely hate. Mm -hmm. But I've always tried to look at the silver lining, which is like, what is this trying to teach me? Yeah. And maybe it's because my Buddhist education too, that it's much easier for me to be like, what is this situation trying to teach me? That's where my mind constantly goes. Um, and again, that's because that's how I'm trained to look at things. That's how I'm trained to build my narrative around. Yeah, that's what Buddhists say, right? Life is full of suffering and hardship, but it's all there to help us grow and transcend it into something Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Six. That was very cool. Thank you, Ella. Uh, yeah, talk to you again. Yay. <laughs> was that okay? That was great. That was terrific.